Hi everyone, this is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by Esau Macaulay to talk with him about his brand new book, How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family's Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. Now, if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, I want to let you know that what we want to do here on the podcast is create a safe place to have difficult conversations, to have conversations to where we might disagree, but we could be respectful, where we don't demonize, where we can have we can have a dialogue without demonizing while still disagreeing at the time, that we can hold our opinions and still love other people at the same time. Now, on on this, you know, part of part of the thing is that we're also on this journey of lifelong learning and in engaging in our curiosity, engaging in our in our imaginations as well to continue to to learn and grow. And that often leads to us having just bunches of uh, different conversations. And that's what we do here on the podcast is have a lot of conversations. Now, if you're on this journey of lifelong learning, I know that it can be difficult to to find good recommendations of things to learn from. And I know that's also very true of me. And that's why I have uh, my Substack letter, which I send out each and every single week. And I just give you three things that are making me think. And it could be anything from a quote to a song to a movie or a TV show or a book or a podcast. I mean, it could literally be anything, but it's uh, my best recommendations for some of the things that I'm currently learning about. And again, you can just go into the show notes or you could go on uh, to my Substack and look me up and just subscribe there and it'll be sent to you each and every single, or an email will be sent to you each and every single week with three of the things that I'm uh, enjoying and some of the things that are capturing my imagination and attention right now. Now, as I mentioned today, I'm talking with Esau Macaulay about his brand new book, How Far to the Promised Land. And, you know, Esau is somebody that I've started learning from uh, just, man, I'm trying to think of when it would have been, uh, maybe, maybe sometime in the last several months or the, the last year or so. But he's become somebody that I just really enjoy learning from. And so whenever I saw that he was coming out with a book, I was very excited uh, just to have the opportunity to talk with him as well, because... Uh, he, he just says a lot of things that are just very uh, challenging and very thought provoking as well. And we're going to get into just a lot of those, uh, a lot of those thoughts and thought provoking. Uh, yeah, thanks. And so let me tell you a little bit about Esau and then we could jump into the conversation or conversation. Esau Macaulay is associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College and theologian in residence at Progressive Baptist Church, a historically black congregation in Chicago. He is the author of the award-winning book, Reading While Black, and the children's book, Josie Johnson's Hair and the Holy Spirit. He is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, and his work has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and Christianity Today. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Esau, it is good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, just as we're getting started, you know, you've written this book, How Far to the Promised Land. And any time that somebody has uh, come out with a work of art, a book, all of that, I love hearing the origin story for it. And I know that you yeah. kind of get get in that towards yeah. the beginning of the book. And so will you mind just kind of sharing with us what prompted you? to write this book? Yeah, it's funny how books kind of hide and then they emerge when they're ready to come out. But I guess I would say, in some sense, I began writing this book in 2017, even though I didn't know it. Um, in 2017, my father died. He was a truck driver. He died in a single car accident in California where the truck he was driving his beard off the interstate and crashed into the overpass below. And to this day, we don't know um, what caused him to do that, what his actual cause of death was. But that man, my father, um, had been in and out of my life when I was a child. And when he was in our life, he struggled with alcohol and um, abuse. And so he was kind of 
when he was around, he was a difficult presence. And when he wasn't around, his departure sent us kind of tumbling down the economic ladder. And because of that reason, my me and my three other siblings and my mom, we kind of came up in poverty for a variety of reasons. And so for most of my life, I didn't know him very well. We didn't have many, many substantial conversations throughout most of our life. But in 2017, he he died. And my family, I'm a, I'm a clergy person. Oh. And my family asked me to do the eulogy um, for my father. And if anyone has ever done a eulogy or heard a eulogy, you have to kind of know about the life of the person in order to do the eulogy well. And that required me sitting down with his relatives and my extended family to know a little bit more about his story. Mm-hmm. And you can't tell the story of your father without actually telling your own story. So revisiting his past kind of made me to, made me kind of grips with the ways in which he has shaped me. And in particular, um, learning about his story, I learned a lot of things that I didn't know. Like, for example, his father, one of the last things his father told him was that he wasn't any good, and that he was always going to be a failure, and it would cause pain to those around him. And I learned about my great-grandmother, who grew up as a, um, a tenant farmer and a midwife. And what began as a family history really morphed into this multi-generational account of Black life in the South. And the ways in which um, the decisions that we make and the decisions that are forced upon us um, by kind of an often racist and oppressive South um, is, is is revelatory about what Black life is in America. If you kind of if you're part of a Black family in the South, spanning from multi generations, spanning from the 1900s all the way up through the 20s uh, 2000s, you experience all of Black all, all of American history in a sense. Because kind of poor black people in the South are always kind of feel American history in a, in, a, in an unfiltered way. So if you know Jim Crow isn't just this hypothetical thing, it's a, it's a real live reality that impacts my family. And so how far to the promised land is in part the stories that were collected uh, in preparation for the eulogy that I gave to my father, which then morphed into an account of black life in the South spanning the generations of my family's history. Um, and, and my own childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to go back to, uh, you know, the eulogy uh, yeah. that you mentioned. And, um, you know, as, as you write in, in the book, you knew that, like, everybody was kind of looking to you yeah. to do the eulogy. Can you kind yeah. of take me back? to Because there there's the thing of, like, everybody's looking to you, yeah. but you still have to accept doing that. Yeah, my could, mom... Could, yeah, yeah. My, my mom calls me, and well, my sister's the one who calls me and tells me my father's passed away. I speak to my mother the next morning. And I knew once I heard that my father died, I don't know why I knew. Um, but there were three people who kind of could have been in the running to do the eulogy. One was my my grandfather um, on my mom's side, her father. But he's a minister too, but he was never a big fan of their relationship. And so I just knew he wasn't going to be the person. Mm-hmm. who they would choose to do it. And then there was the pastor that we knew growing up, but my father wasn't really a part of the congregation. So he wasn't a good fit. And that that fell down to me. And at first, when I called my mom to tell her, I had decided over overnight to say that I wanted to do the eulogy. I thought it had to be an argument to say that I should do it. And as soon as I told my mom, she told me, no, we've already had a discussion about this. We decided that you would do it and that you would be the one who would tell the truth. And I think that they knew that I would be um, two things to kind of emerge in the book. They would both be honest and unflinching in what it says, but also leave room for hope. Um, and so I think that's that was the responsibility that my family gave to me. And hopefully, because the, the final chapter in the book is the eulogy, mm-hmm. um, an account. They had, it's, it was a, it was a, they, they made me shorten it. So not the full eulogy, but it's the main points from the eulogy. You have to edit yeah. it down a little bit for readability. But the main points of the eulogy actually are recounted in the final chapter. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to go back to what you mentioned of just in, in truth telling and even in the eulogy that you were talking about, this tension between you want to be honest, but you yeah. do want to give people hope. And like, it's also your dad and you love yeah. your dad. Like, just talk to me about like just navigating just that. I mean, I know that we're talking yeah. about it specifically in the eulogy, but that's just something that a lot of us just have to navigate just through. Yeah. Life. I think that part of what it means for me as a Christian and as um, an ordained minister and a person who tries to live with some integrity, I don't think that you should give people like false hope mm-hmm. that you should lie to them. And you should say things that aren't true just to kind of calm our consciences. Life is hard. 
and the decisions that we make are hard and they matter. And sometimes people make a mess of things. Um, and so you can't run from that. And I felt like being dishonest isn't going to liberate or free anybody. Um, but also there is sometimes room for hope even in broken things. And one of the major themes of how far, how far to the promised land is we tend to look at um, the lives that make it according to the way that we define success. So if you make it to the like the middle class and you have a nice home and you have a nice family with well manicured lawns, that you've made it and that your story matters. So we go to you and say, how do you do this thing? It's just, that's the person who gets to tell their story. But sometimes there is something in the struggle for meaning and the struggle to find oneself that occurs in lives that we don't define as successful that are also instructive. And not just as object lessons, but as beautiful in their own right. And so what I was trying to do in the eulogy and in um, the book broadly was to show the beauty in broken things. The book opens with kind of the, what do you call it? The little excerpt that happens before, like you open it up, one of the first things you see. Like the preface? The, the preface, that... but not the pre-preface, whatever you want to call yeah. it. I'm pretty sure there's a fancy term for it. But the, <laughs> yeah. if the reader opens up the book, the first thing they actually see after they get past the title and the stuff, it's actually the, the story of the parable of the Pharisee yeah. and the tax collector. Yeah. Which is the text that I use from the eulogy, but this gets to the point. So we all know the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, anybody who grew up in the church. And the whole point of the Pharisee and the tax collector is there's these two characters. One is the Pharisee who, who lived his whole life holy. He kind of goes, I'm so glad that I'm better than everybody else. And, you know, I do everything right. Then there's another character who shows up. And he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Bible says that the second man goes home justified. Now, we love that story because the whole point of that story is it doesn't matter what you did beforehand. If you just repent to God, he can forgive you no matter what. And that's fine. That's great. It's true. But that's a, that's a, a sliver of the, of, the, of the tax collector's story. What if you told his whole story? What if you actually saw all of the damage he did to people before he, he he arrived at that moment. In other words, the tax collector, before he has an encounter with God, causes tremendous pain to the people around him. The tax collector goes to someone's house, and even if they don't have the money, through, through, the, through, through physical violence, he takes it. The money, the tax money that he took from the poor could have often led to people starving. That's the reason they were hated in the communities, because the tax collectors did real drama to people. They inflicted real trauma upon people. And so, yes, we celebrate that moment of repentance, but we also need to remember all of the ways in which that person's life caused pain. And so what I want to show is, even though there's kind of a, a turn towards like the light um, and the narratives of a lot of the characters, I have to show the context into which that moment comes. And so what I like to say is like, How Far to the Promised Land is, in some sense, a book about all the havoc that the tax collector reaped before he had his moment of conversion and the ways in which the people who were around the tax collector struggled to make sense of their life. Like, why are these things happening to me? And how is the person who damaged me complicit in it? And so you have to tell both of those stories in the eulogy. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're glad that people make some kind of attempts to stretch their hands towards God. And we believe that God is gracious to forgive, but that doesn't undo all of the trauma that we experience between now and then. Mm -hmm. yeah is there and I, and I know that we talked about it, but it's it's such a it's such a thing like i even find myself facing that is there is there anything else that has helped you just manage that and and again there may not be but manage just, manage what exactly just just that tension that tension of pointing towards the hope and again you yeah. may have already said everything that you're going to say but it's just it's something that i'm very interested in just well, I, 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 I think i think i think um for me, one of the things that helped me to find hope was that I didn't want to believe that the entirety of my childhood and my community was one big object lesson. Mm. That it was all kind of morality tales that says, don't do this and don't do that. Mm -hmm. In other words, there when I was a kid, what we would hear on the radio and in TV and these other places, people would say like on the news about my community, 
you know, those kids from Huntsville, from Northwest Huntsville, they can't learn. They're not any good. They're a bunch of criminals. You know, they're nothing. And so we had a tremendous desire to prove them wrong. And the what I want to say is the people who made it to what we describe as the middle class aren't the only people who proved the people wrong about my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. The neighborhood itself, including my father, including many of the people who were part of it, the neighborhood itself had a, had a beauty to it that you had to be there to see. But you can't tell the beauty without telling the brokenness. And part of the reason then, I guess I want to say there was hope there or beauty there is because it's true, right? That that there's something, there's something miraculous about every human life. Mm-hmm. And this, I, I genuinely believe, you know, we, we talk about how we're all, all made in the image of God. And there's something, something glorious about the human being that we are we, we we are cast into this existence and we're trying to find like the promised land we're trying to find meaning and purpose and dignity and we're trying to find god and that that process that struggle has moments of glory in it that you sometimes have to be close enough to the poor and disinherited people to be able to see and I wanted to show that. I wanted to show that because people, one of the things that happens when you have money is you can insulate yourself from stories. You can move to a neighborhood where you don't see the homeless. You can move away from any potential crime or danger. And you can kind of simply hear summaries of lies that you see in the media. And those summaries of lies can just confirm your worst biases. You're going to go, oh, I know what those people are like. And so what I want to say is, no, no, no. You need to see us in all of our wonderful complexities, our glories and our struggles, and understand that we are persons. And we are persons made in the image of God who under very difficult circumstances are trying to come to some sense of healing and, and, and purpose and faith. And I wanted people to be able to see that. And I didn't have these narratives where, where like everybody has this glorious end as we would describe glorious endings. And so I couldn't tell that story. So like I couldn't tell my father's eulogy without telling about the pain because it's in the context of the plane that I think the glory emerges. And so I found hope maybe because there was some hope there. Hmm. Um, even if you had to sometimes dig a little deep to find it. You know, you mentioned it a couple of times of moving beyond like the object lesson. What is, what's helped you kind of do that? Is it just as simple as, you know, getting closer to people, getting involved with their stories or? or... Yeah, it's because I was there. Um, so the, there's different parts of the book. There are parts of the book that, that, that recount, you know, when I'm alive and old enough to understand what's going on. Um, and there's also stories from before I was born where I spoke to the people who were there. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you realize when you grow up, at least where I grew up, I like. I guess what I want to say is that America teaches you to tell certain kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. You see it on the internet. You see it on memes. You got to grind. You got to want it. You got to do this, that, and the other. You got to like hustle culture. And if you want it bad enough, you can like manifest it or whatever yeah. craziness they're talking about. But that's simply a lie. And we need to start telling people that. Because it makes it seem like the only people who made it were the people who wanted it. And there are good people who wanted it worked just as hard as I did, whose lives didn't end the way that my life ended. And so I didn't make it because I was special. I made it because God was gracious. Mm-hmm. And I wanted people, so in other words, they weren't, we we can we can tell the story that we're taught to tell because in telling those stories, we receive certain rewards. Because America likes to believe that it's the land of opportunity. And I'm not saying there's no opportunity in America. Like I'm not, I'm not going down that road. What I'm saying is we like to hear the story as someone pulled themselves up by their bootstraps because we like to believe, yes, we put you through it, but you made it. Therefore, everything is fundamentally okay. Mm-hmm. And the only people who get to tell the story, the only people who get to tell the story are the survivors. Like you have to win the right to tell your story. The poor don't get to tell their story anymore because they don't they don't have access to the pen of the platform. And so what I wanted to say is rather than simply saying, 
here's someone who survived, you know, the Hunger Games. I want to say, are we comfortable in a country that requires this kind of suffering in order to flourish? And so for me, it was easy to tell this kind of story that wasn't an object lesson because they weren't object lessons to me. They were my friends, they were my neighbors, they were my fellow church members growing up. And so they weren't just they weren't just narrative devices to push me forward. They were people. And I hope that if the reader who who encounters these characters sees them as people so not just object lessons. Mm -hmm. What's another story? that um that america tells or wants us to tell i think one story is that we can tell by someone's past what their future is going to be hmm. what i mean by that i tell this story in the book of sitting in my house one day and there is a drive-by and i'm sitting there uh, i think i'm in high school at the time and the bullets come flying through um, my the walls of my house. It's just like flying through. I remember thinking very clearly, the bullets are flying everywhere. So ducking or dodging isn't going to make me make me safe. So I'm just going to stay where I am until the shooting stops. Mm-hmm. And so I don't I don't move. And police come and they go. And a few minutes later, I remember looking at the wall where I was sitting. I sit there. I sit in the same spot and watch, play my video games, whatever. I remember seeing like a bullet hole, like three inches to the right um, uh, where my head was from where I was sitting. You can kind of see it um, through my vision. And I thought to myself, you know, if I had moved over just a little bit and got shot in the head and died, what would the story of my life have been? It would have been, even though I wasn't the, the target, young black kid, um, victim of gang violence, you know, because he hung around with or he knew these known criminals. If the people would have said, oh, this kid got what he deserved. He shouldn't have been in that neighborhood. He shouldn't have been around those people. We know that he was no good. That's how they would have summarized my life at the end of that moment. They probably could have said, look, he's been suspended from school. He had these known. So they could have crafted a narrative of my life in which that, that conclusion was the conclusion that I deserved. But it's clear that that wasn't the end of my story, that I was more than just those things they said about me, that I would go on to have the career that I had. And I recognize that one of the things, I rec- I think about that a lot whenever there's a victim of gun violence or police violence where the person dies unjustly. And, and inevitably, they always say, look at this person's rap sheet. Mm-hmm. Look at all of the things that they did in their past. We know that their future is going to be nothing but crime or nothing but brokenness. And I want to say that is actually the opposite of what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches that there's always this chance to begin again. There's always this opportunity that our lives may have a plot twist. And so when I see someone summarize the life of someone who had been killed unjustly and say, we know for a, future, for, for a fact what you were and we're not going to become, I'm going to say that's probably what you would have said about me when I was 16 or 17 years old. And so we, what I want to say, we can't predict because we're not God. As a matter of fact, the whole point of repent and believe is that at any moment in one's life, God is right there to radically change us. And one of the things that really disturbs me is that sometimes it feels like my fellow Christian brothers and sisters are the quickest ones to conclude that they understand what someone's life would have been. This might seem like a radical idea, but for me personally, the lies that hurt me the most, like the losses that hurt me the most, we, we do the opposite. We kind of say, look how wonderful this person is. I can't believe they were taken away when they were young. And that's true, right? That the death of any person is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. But if someone to me had found God and had found purpose were living a life of integrity, yes, I lament their I, I lament their passing, but they had found themselves. They kind of their story had some kind of coherence to it. For me, it's precisely the lost people who haven't had that turn towards God, who deserve the most protection. And mm-hmm. their deaths are the greatest tragedy because they didn't have the time to find themselves. And so I guess I wanted to say is that America and sometimes the church values the wrong people. Jesus himself said, "I can't, it's not the healthy that I came to 
to see it, but the sick, the sick, the broken are the object of God's compassion. And I wanted, I wanted in the narrative to challenge that tendency of callousness towards the poor and the disinherited that we see sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you think makes it so that the church tends to be that way, tends to assume that we know how people's stories are going to play out? It's because it's easy to shrink the gospel. Mm. Or it's easy to, I don't even like to say the, the language of gospel. I, I, I want to say it's easy to shrink the Christian message. Because one of the things that we do as the church, we find a lot of ways to, to like hide from what God is telling us to do. And so we want to argue about what the gospel is. Like, is the gospel repentant, you know, believe, you know, the simple, the, 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 the message of salvation, or does the gospel include the, the statements about the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like? We can get into these big esoteric debates about saying, is love for your neighbor a part of the gospel or the implication of the gospel? And I just kind of short circuit that entire debate by saying the following. When Jesus sent us out on the Great Commission, he said, I want you to teach people everything that I taught you. That's what Jesus says. It's like right there in the Bible. I know people have it. They have that same, you have that Bible where, where you live, Matthew 28 in it? <laughs> you got it. Okay, so Matthew 28, he says, whatever I taught you, you tell to people. So for me, I don't got to prove that it's in the gospel. I got to prove that Jesus taught it. Mm. And if Jesus taught it, then we should care about it. And I dare someone to say that something like Luke 4 isn't in the Bible. And so we hide from the implications of what our Savior taught us because it's hard. It's hard to love broken people. One of the things that happens is, and this is one of the things I try to get across in the book, is that we can make a virtue out of poverty in the sense that caring about the poor is once again just a thing that we argue about. One of the things you should learn about poor people, because I was one of them, and I grew up with them, is the poor people can be mean too. The poor people can be cruel. And they, they're not, if you try to help, they're not gonna automatically go, thank you, wealthy person, for your generosity. Let me shower you with praise. No, they're difficult to love. And we lie and we manipulate and we cheat because they're human beings. And so when you have that kind of complex person who's not easy to love, it's easier to just not love them. And we can even couch our, our lack of love in love. So in other words, I'm not gonna help this poor person because if I help them, then they're gonna be lazy and they're gonna work as hard. Mm. And so we gotta say, I wanna make them suffer. And if they suffer long enough, they'll get tired of being poor and they'll work harder. Once again, I wanna say that all of those things are ways of us running from the implications of what Jesus actually taught us. Mm. You know, I. One of the the stories that you mentioned towards the beginning of the book is um, you talk about a conference that you were at with Lecrae and everything. And, and during that, you get asked a very vulnerable question and you yeah. decide, hey, I'm I'm just not going to I'm not going to answer this question. Yeah. And and that got me thinking about and, and, you know, feel free to elaborate on the story as much as you want. But it just got me thinking of you write so, so many vulnerable things in this yeah. book. And yeah. you decide to share. And so I would just be curious to hear even just your thoughts of, you know, and again, you can go specifically into the book of deciding to share the book, but even like you, you write a lot of public things too. Yeah. Can you take me into like your, your decision-making process between, okay, this is too vulnerable for me to share yeah. versus no, I, I do want to share this and I do want to be vulnerable in that. Yeah. One of the things that I would say is that I didn't tell people everything. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of stuff in my life that's not in that book. Um, mm -hmm. And what I want to say is sometimes it's important to sh with discernment to share our scars so that people will know that Jesus is a, is a healer mm -hmm. and that our scars and our wounds need not be the end of our story. And I spoke with, you know, the character, the people, the, for the people who are still living. I feel that people were involved before I told the stories that I told and said, do you feel comfortable with these things being public? But the reason, the reason that I told the stories that I told is because I wanted people once again to see my community. 
<laughs> and there are certain stories that happen to us in our lives that just don't let us go. They kind of grab a hold to us. And we return to them again and again and again and again and again. We kind of replay them in our head. And the truth is we can't undo the past. We can't, we can't change the things that happen. We can write a different ending. We can end the past. We can write a conclusion to the narrative that wraps them up in some meaning. And so for me, the people who you encounter and the stories that you encounter wouldn't let me go. And they they, they shaped me to who I am. And I was crazy enough or maybe hopeful enough to believe that if you met these characters and these people, it might change you too. They might stick with you and they might shape how you perceive people and how you treat people. And so I hope that by sharing them, um, it might, it might, it might do some good in the world. And I guess I, I had this kind of um, crazy idea that sometimes people think about Christians, especially people who talk publicly about faith, that um, we are Christians because it's easy for us, that the Christianity just kind of works. And I wanted, I wanted to be able to say from here on out, when I say God is good, you understand that that is a hard one, hard one sentence. That it's not just some kind of trite cliche, but I can say that with genuine conviction um, that is born not in spite of, or, or not, not, not because of a lack of suffering, but in the midst of suffering, I was able to, to come to that conclusion. And so I didn't want people to misunderstand. And I guess for me, um, those those realities gave me the, um, the freedom to tell the stories that I did. Mm -hmm. Talk to me. Talk to me a little bit about that. Of like what what led you to the place to where you do say like and again, you know, people who want to you know hear a part of your story, they can check out the book. But where you do say that God is good. Can you just walk me through a little bit of like, I guess just your confidence in that? I mean, confidence might be the wrong, yeah. wrong word. <laughs> yeah. You I might... guess, I, I, I guess, I guess I want to say there's some people and maybe this is all perspective, but from the yeah. outside looking in, it just feels like Christianity just works for them. Mm -hmm. And that it's not easy, but the faith comes to them in a different way. And for me, my spirituality has always been one of like, life is hard, but God is good. Mm -hmm. And I always felt closest to people who understood that, who understood that struggle and that fight to believe. And if I have any kind of calling or purpose, is to begin to sketch out for people like um, how I arrived at that conclusion. Now, in order for me to tell you like how I arrived at that conclusion, you'd have to read How Far to the Promise. Yeah. And so you had to read it from beginning to end. Yeah. And I would have to say, um, yeah, it just, it, it just felt like for me, I guess I want to put it this way. I remember when I was in uh, working on my PhD, I went to this um, this debate about the existence of God. Mm -hmm. And it was like these two white guys. And they were talking, maybe, I can't remember this, the one that I was at live, or maybe I saw it. I listened to it on the stream. I've seen so many of these things, mm -hmm. they run together in my head. But I remember these two guys debating. And one guy said the God existed, the other guy said the God didn't exist. And they had a bunch of different arguments and they were reading. They were, they were one of, at some point it turned towards like the suffering of, of children in Africa or whatever, AIDS or malaria or whatever it was. And one guy was saying, look at the sufferings of these people. God can't exist. And the other guy was like, well, God does exist. And I was the only black guy in the room was like, almost stood up and said, well, do we get a vote? Do we who have suffered, have we run the, have you won the right to interpret our suffering? and not just be, once again, an object lesson. And so for me, part of telling these stories was for me to, to gain power over them and to interpret them for myself and for the world, that I get to decide how I understand God's existence in the context of suffering. And it's not just me, 
but the people in my family on both sides, um, um, you know, spanning the generations, how they made sense of those things. And so I guess that's what I was trying to get at in the book. You know, another uh, theme throughout the book is you just figuring out your identity as well, particularly, yeah. you know, or I, I was just going to say, I guess just your identity. And like one of the instances that come to my mind for that is whenever, uh, whenever you uh, receive your call yeah. and you, you start preaching yeah. and you realize like, oh, okay, I do not preach like all of the other black preachers. I preach a little bit yeah. differently and I communicate yeah. my ideas differently than that. Yeah. First of all, feel free to elaborate that on, on, on what yeah. you were feeling as much as possible. But then even just take me to like just what, like what helped you? Like just with your identity and even just being secure in that of like you're you're different yeah. that you're that you're gifted differently. So um, when I I grew up in the in the black church and um, black Baptist church in Alabama and I'm proud of it and and I don't have any problem with the way that those people communicate you know the mm -hmm. kind of call and response really exuberant style of preaching. And I enjoyed it. I grew up, I, everybody around me preached like that. And I love those churches. I attend a church where the pastor preaches like that um, still. But when I experienced my own call to ministry, my sermons just didn't sound like that. I just wrote and spoke differently. I kind of speak the way that I speak to you now. And for a while, I felt like there must be something wrong with me because I didn't have the rhetorical gifts that marked the black preaching tradition and i knew what it was i knew what was expected of me i knew what the i knew how to imitate it but i couldn't embody it because mm -hmm. god made me differently um, he made me a different kind of communicator and one of the things that 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 helped me see is that i could never be anybody other than who god created me to be but i wasn't good at being a facsimile of someone else but I was only good at being myself. And what actually was happening is I think that one of my primary gifts that I didn't see at the time, because there's no category of it, was writers. Mm -hmm. And in my writing, even from like the first time I put pen to paper, interestingly, you asked about like the vulnerability in, um, in how far to the promised land, my writing has always been vulnerable and introspective. Mm -hmm. That um, rather than assertions that I've always, um, ask questions. And when I say about asking questions, I don't want to mean to be like squishy, like what does the resurrection mean? No, I believe that right. Jesus Christ died and arose on the third day. But my way of persuading and arguing has always been rooted in like the imagination. Mm -hmm. Because I think that we have to imagine a world before we can inhabit it. And one of the hard things to do is in my own life to imagine a different way of being for myself that I've not seen before. And I feel like I spent a lot of my time, even now, um, struggling to be understood. I think part of us, all of us, want to be understood and known. We want to be free to be who God made us to be. Not free to like create a meaning or identity for ourselves, but to fully embrace the identity that's given to us through Jesus. And so for me, writing, has been a way in which I have tried to birth, both assert who I feel like God has called me to be and discover who God called me to be. Um, and that, that life that I live is complicated. In some ways I have endured kind of um, certain career and vocational limitations precisely because I refused to be who everybody wanted me to be. And I had to try to be as best as I could discern it, who I felt like God is calling me to be. And I want to say to anybody who's listening, like being yourself doesn't always mean that you win financially or vocationally, but it's what keeps you from going crazy. Yeah. And I couldn't, I couldn't, the reason why I kept preaching and kept doing those things, it didn't change. It wasn't because I was stubborn. It's just I couldn't be anybody other than who God made me to be. And as best as I can discern it, this is who God has called me to be. This kind of yeah. person, this kind of writer, this kind of preacher. Yeah. Can you kind of tease out like what that, that you said that you use questions to kind of explore ideas instead of asserting. Can you give like an example of kind of what that looks like? Yeah. The structure of how far to the promised land, the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So people ask me all of the time to say, um, you know, what is this book about? 
is it one thing? You know, like people know about, oh, I know a book about race in America. I can kind of understand that. Well, I know a book about poverty in America. I kind of know a spiritual odyssey book, but I don't know a book that does all three of those. And it doesn't give you like three easy to like digest points. And so when I wrote How Far to the Promised Land, people always ask me like, what were you trying to do? But I was trying to write something beautiful and write something true. And so like, that's what, that's like the purpose of it. It's beautiful, it's hard, it's beautiful, but it's true. And so it's not a linear argument. It's not even a linear story, but I think it's true and I think it's beautiful. And so, and it's not, it's a memoir that's not about the protagonist. Yeah. Right. And so (laughs) I'm I'm not the star of the book. And so you want to ask me like, how have you tried to, and I said like the only book that I can tell the only story that I felt comfortable telling is the story of a community. Yeah. And so how far to the promised land is an assertion of me being myself yeah. and not communicating along the beach that were expected of me. Mm. Um, like a, a memoir that has the redemption of a, the, the first part of the book is called the making of a villain. First, one of the first chapters. And then like that villain isn't simply a villain. And so like being comfortable with complexity and ambiguity and storytelling, and it's almost like, and, and listen, I want people to understand that I'm a Bible scholar, so my knowledge is come from the Bible, but I'm not silly enough to know, think that I'm like writing on the level of the Bible. So don't get that confused. Yeah. But sometimes you have to read the stories in biblical narratives and discover through reflection the point they were supposed to be gleaned because it doesn't hand it to you. Mm-hmm. And then how far to the promised land, their narratives that, that, that it doesn't say, and here's the neat little point. But trust yeah. me, there's a point in there yeah. if you attend to what I'm going on. So that's what I would say is yeah. the book itself is a manifestation of my own intellectual, spiritual, and literary independence. Yeah. And I actually I actually wrote this down and I think it summarized, I mean, it, it just goes to the heart of what we were talking about. And this is, man, this is such a good question. You say, how does one love and provide in a system designed to make that nearly impossible? And then you go on and say, when I learned my family history for the first time, that was the question that lingered with me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, the, and that's and that's what I want you to think about. Um, and yeah. I, and the language of comfort. So here's the thing: there's certain people who are policy experts. They can give you like all of the statistics, and they can show you change these three laws. And I actually think that like that might be a good second step. You might read this book and be inspired to delve, delve deeper into a variety of host of issues. And I'm not a policy person. It's not my gifting. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that there is something that precedes policy that involves the shaping of the imagination. Mm-hmm. And when I spoke of the language of comfort, that's what I meant. I'm just like, can you actually live in a country? Are you comfortable here? In a place that is filled with so much injustice. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that a lot of us aren't uncomfortable or aren't comfortable with it. Did you know why I can tell? Because we lie. Mm-hmm. So in other words, rather than dealing with the problems, we say, well, no, these problems don't exist. Right? Because they exist and you feel like you're morally complicit. And so one of the ways to avoid dealing with the problems is to argue that they don't exist. And that's why people get so mad when we talk about these things. Why are people so angry at the idea that racism might persist and be in structures in society? It's because if that is true, then things have to change. Mm. And so it can't be true because the emotional and the imaginative reconstruction of their world seems to be so grand that it's easier to avoid it. Mm-hmm. And part of the work of the people who care and whose gifts are um, in the literary and the artistic is to say over and over again, I'm sorry, but you have to see this. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was trying to do in different parts of how far to the promise. Mm-hmm. Well, I got a couple other questions I want to ask you. But before that, I always love just giving people the opportunity to talk about anything that is just currently on your mind, you know, it could be something from the book or relating to what we've talked about that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that we talk about or cover. 
Yeah, I want to say um, I thought a lot about C.S. Lewis, believe it or not. Yeah. And Surprised by Joy or um, Seven Store Mountain by um, Thomas Merton, Confessions by Augustine. Not to say that this work is on that literary level. It's that um, there are these quintessential Christian conversion stories. We all read and talk about them over and over again. They're like these classics of the genre. And I felt strongly that I wanted to be able to have a spiritual odyssey book mm -hmm. that had a black protagonist that told a distinctively black story that was also deeply Christian. In other words, I don't, I had no idea what it was like to be some British Don in England, but I could still see myself in, in parts of Surprise by Joy. Mm. And I said, you know, I can't tell a spiritual odyssey. There's just this questions of God floating around through 14 chapters that climaxes in this spiritual epiphany. But that for me to tell that story, it had to include familial trauma, they had to include anti-Black racism, and it had to include poverty. Because it was in that context that I asked questions about God. Mm. And there's a lot of Black people who, whose, whose discovery of God is, is in the midst of that exact set of, of kind of complicating factors. But nonetheless, because God is a central character in the story, it is, in the end, the spiritual biography. Mm -hmm. It begins with the eulogy, and it ends with the eulogy. And it ends with finding God in the narrative. And I don't think, for that reason, it's a Black story. It is. Mm -hmm. But it's not just a Black story. Any more than um, Surprised by Joy is just a British story. That we can tell stories rooted in our experience precisely because they're particular, that are also universal. And one of the things that like, in my moments of, of doubt and melancholy, I wonder if the church actually receives those stories. But truthfully speaking, black Christian literature only sails around the context of tragedies. That in the context of George Floyd or something like that, people go and buy our books but beyond that, we kind of push to the side. And so the real question this is it's kind of that, that lingers in the back of my head is do does the rest of the church care about what black people are experiencing outside of the immediate context of the tragedy? Mm -hmm. Um, but I told the story anyway, and I hope that um it, it, it's useful to people. Mm -hmm. Well, it's very I can speak for myself. It has been very impactful to me. And so thank you for writing it oh you're welcome yeah um two two other things i want to ask you about the first is and i and i think this happens um i think it's either in like the last chapter or the second to last chapter is um is uh i think it's at, actually i think it's in the last chapter because i think it's after the eulogy is um is you talk with your son luke and he's he's wrestling a little bit yeah with this too and one of one of the quotes that you say uh to him is that for a long time, all I could see were the sad parts. Yeah. It took me a long time to see where God was in any of it. And I'd just love to have you just elaborate just, just a little bit more on just on that, because we are so tempted to, fi to, to fixate in the moment, to fixate on the sadness and, and for good reason too, because it's painful because it, there's suffering. I think that, um, I think a lot about Joseph, Mm. Um, from the Bible. Mm -hmm. And we know that story that Joseph said, um, but God intended, what you intended for evil, God intended for good to think about the salvation of, uh, of many. And that's Joseph at the end of his life, right? We not at the end, Like at the end of the narrative. But we what, what we don't actually have is a lot of introspection from Joseph throughout most of the rest of that narrative. The things that just happened to Joseph, we don't actually see Joseph processing it until we get to the end. 
And I wonder sometimes if Joseph, after he had gotten out of jail and after he had um, made it to the high points in Egyptian culture and he had all of this power and his prestige, but he was still separated from his family and his the people that he loved. A part of him wasn't bitter and angry. He didn't like get upset with um, God at any point because you can actually succeed in life and still have that lingering pain. We don't know. I know that I think that one of his sons that God has made me, God has made me um, like something in the land of my affliction is the name of like one of his sons or something like that. And so you see like these little hints that he's still kind of processing it. And, but by the time Joseph gets there, when Joseph finally gets to interpret his entire life, he's able to say at that point, God, I can see what you're up to. But I think I think I think it would be um, probably a little bit rosy to think that Joseph never was sitting in 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 jail sometime, going like, "What is happening?" And what I tried to put on paper is the time from the beginning until I got to that place, and I think that part of being a Christian, it's finally arriving there. I think when 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 you're younger, maybe you feel like you kind of got Christianity figured out. I was getting married in my early 20s, mid-20s. And I thought, okay, like I, I found this wonderful woman um, and we're just gonna have a family and we're just gonna rinse and repeat and live the next 50 years and things are gonna be simple. But that's not actually what happened. That life keeps coming at you over and over and over and over and over again. And these gets difficult. And you realize that um, Christianity is not about an escape from suffering, but a persistent finding meaning in the middle of suffering. Because life in this broken world often causes you to hurt. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 is, it, is, it is one gift in Christianity that it allows us to not have our suffering be the end of the story, but that because of the gospel, even our darkest moments are infused with light. And part of the book is me coming to that conclusion. The last thing I want to ask you about is just through through this writing process, through um, even the the, um, the preparation for the eulogy, what did you learn about Jesus? Um, there is... Um, I learned that all the things that my that as a kid I thought were cliches mm -hmm. were hard-worn truths. Like for example, my they used to say he's a doctor in a sick room. Mm. My Jesus is a healer. I said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, they say that in church, but he is a doctor. Um, they would say he makes a way out of no way. I was like, man, that sounds like Christianese until you get to the place where there is no way and Jesus actually parts the Red Sea and allows you to walk over on dry land. Um, he'll he, he's a friend that sticks closer to you than a brother. And, and until you're really by yourself and you're in it, you don't know that those things are true. And so I think one of the things that, that I learned about God and Jesus might be that we think that the people who can write in in, in multi-syllable prose and who have learned degrees and who have these kind of studied reflections upon God are the theologians. But there is a a profound wisdom in the, the regular folks who've been walking with Jesus a mighty long time, whose whose convictions pierce through the fog of our understanding and challenge us to believe again. And the women who the reader will encounter in this in this story are women who did just that for me. Well, Esau, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get your book, How Far to the Promised Land. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? So if you go anywhere where you can, where books are sold, you can buy it. Um, 
And if they don't have it, tell them in your local bookstore, ask them to order it and you yeah. can get it that way. And you can find me, I have a, a, a unique name, Esau McCauley, and that's at all social media. It's Instagram, Twitter, uh, I guess it's called X now or oh, yeah. threads <laughs> or wherever. So yeah. you can find me with the name Esau McCauley uh, on any place where social media, well, not any place, I'm too old to be on TikTok. So <laughs> any any non-video media, yeah. you can find me. <laughs> awesome. Well, I got to say, thank you so much for the wonderful conversation. And the book is just superb. It's very excellent. I, le- I read a ton of books for the podcast. It is one of my favorite books that I've read oh. this year. So again, thank you so much for the conversation. And just thank you for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Thank you so much. I really enjoy it. Yeah, you ask great questions. So you, you, you are good at what you do. So thank you. So as I was thinking and reflecting on this conversation and really just on the book as a whole, this, you know, I, I was reading in, you know, one, one of the things that, um, you know, that I just know about uh, books and reading, you know, I read, I read so much stuff for the podcast and even just for um, my own enjoyment and betterment and so on and so forth. But there's there's books that you have to pull yourself through and then there's books that pull you through them as well that you can't put them down how do you enjoy them so much and this is one of those books this is one of the best books that i've read this year and i highly enjoy it from i mean i i just love what he said it is an odyssey it's an odyssey it's a biography it's it's so many different things and it's just a very beautiful book and I, and I highly recommend it. And, you know, some of the things that, um, you know, some, some of the things as, as I'm even trying to think about it, you'll just gain a greater appreciation from just reading the book from the vulnerability, the curiosity, the just, <laughs> there's just so many, so many things in that i think a couple of things that resonate for me from the conversation and which are really just some of the the themes that are found in the book is what we talked about of that tension between honesty and hope and realizing that i mean that's just been something that i've just been thinking about a lot of how do you be honest about the situation that you're facing while at the still time or at the same time maintaining hope and whether that be about a situation or a person, but just figuring figuring that out and learning learning to handle hand or to hold both of those two things and live in the tension, live in the contrast of it. And it's much easier said than done, but not forsaking one for the other, not forsaking honesty and not forsaking hope and realizing that as as christians i think that's a little bit of our responsibility and something that we need to become a little bit better at is how do you how do you become better at holding both of those things in tandem and not forsaking one or the other and i absolutely love the other thing that he talked about is is engaging the world through asking questions instead of making assertions and it just makes me think of you know and it's it's been said it's probably been said before at this pot on this podcast um but engaging with questions instead of engaging with statements of thinking of ways to explore and curiosity and imagination and then making declarative statements. And, you know, that, that could be a little bit of my style too. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I just absolutely enjoyed uh, this conversation and highly re- recommend the book as well. So yeah, those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. I want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast Thank you again to Esau for coming on the podcast for just the great book and for the wonderful conversation. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Kayla Mason. And until next time, oh, I, you know, keep learning, keep growing, all that stuff. And if you want to keep learning and keep growing, I almost forgot, subscribe to my Substack, and you can pick up uh, three things each week that I'm learning from. And again, just check out the show notes for that. And so, for real. Thanks so much for listening to this end of the, the real end of this podcast. And until next time, keep learning, 
and keep growing.